So it was also Eleanor. It was also Eleanor who had weekly press conferences and only female reporters could come, which meant that stuffy publishers all over the country had to hire their first female reporter. In fact, a whole generation of female journalists got their start because of Eleanor Roosevelt. So you can well imagine what an incredible role model she was for me as a young woman trying to write about her, trying to figure out my own way in this complex world. I think one of the funnier aspects of the home front during the war can be seen in the peculiarities of the rationing system. When rubber from Southeast Asia was cut off at a time when rubber was needed for the planes and the tanks, etc., they had to stop all private ma manufacture of rubber for raincoats or toys. So it was all taken in stride until it was announced that rubber girdles could no longer be manufactured. Huge outcry. Their stomachs would stick out, it was said. Bad posture would result. Articles were written showing that nothing, not even exercise, could flatten stomachs the way that girdles could. But finally, the pièce de résistance, men's morale will go down. The soldiers will be hurt. FDR made an exception, and rubber girdles continued to be manufactured. <laughs> I, I can just hear FDR laughing when he heard about the girdles, for he found a sustenance in a life-affirming sense of humor understanding the importance of relaxing to replenish his energies to face the struggles of the final firing days. Indeed, he built relaxation into his daily schedule, so much so that his favorite time of day was a cocktail hour where nothing could be said about the war. The rule was you could talk about novels you'd read, movies you'd seen, gossip about who was involved with whom, as long as for a few precious hours the war wasn't mentioned. And this cocktail hour mattered so much to him that he actually wanted people living in the second floor of the White House with him to be ready for the cocktail hour. So the White House became the most exclusive residential hotel one could possibly imagine. It turned out that Harry Hopkins, his foreign policy advisor, came for dinner one night early in the war, slept over, didn't leave until the war came to an end. Winston Churchill came and spent weeks at a time in a bedroom diagonally across from Roosevelt's. He would stay on drinking and smoking well past the cocktail hour with Roosevelt until sometimes 2 a.m. when Eleanor would come in and say, isn't it time for you two little boys to go to bed? A beautiful princess from Martha was in exile in America during the war. She lived with the family on the weekends. Eleanor Roosevelt's great friend, Lorena Hickok, had a bedroom next to Eleanor's. So I kept imagining when I was writing the book what fabulous conversations they all must have had in their bathrobes as they gathered in the corridor that is on that second floor surrounding the bedroom suites in the White House and wishing that when I'd been up there with Lyndon Johnson when I was 24, I thought of asking, where did FDR sleep? Where was Churchill? Where was Harry Hopkins? But of course, I wasn't thinking in those terms then. So I happened to mention this on a radio program in Washington and it happened that Hillary Clinton was listening. So she promptly called me up at the radio station and invited me to sleep overnight in the White House. She said we could then wander the corridor together and figure out where everyone had slept 50 years earlier. So two weeks later, she followed up with an invitation to a state dinner, after which between midnight and 2 a.m., the president, Mrs. Clinton, my husband, and I, with my map in hand, went through every room up there and figured out, yes, Chelsea Clinton is sleeping where Harry Hopkins once slept. Bill Clinton is sleeping where FDR was, and we had been given Churchill's bedroom, which meant there was no way I could sleep. I was certain Churchill was sitting in the corner drinking his brandy and smoking his cigar. In fact, that bedroom is the scene of my favorite story in World War II. When Churchill came there shortly after Pearl Harbor, he and Roosevelt were set to sign a document that put the Allied nations against the Axis powers, but the Allied nations were calling themselves then the Associated Nations, and no one liked the word. 
So early that morning, Roosevelt awakened with the whole new idea of calling themselves the United Nations. It's where the word is born. He was so excited that he had himself wheeled into Churchill's bedroom to tell him the news. But it so happened Churchill was just coming out of the bathtub and had absolutely nothing on. So Roosevelt said, I'm so sorry, I'll come back in a few moments. But Churchill, ever able to speak in a very formal voice, said, oh no, please stay. The Prime Minister of Great Britain has nothing to hide from the President of the United States. I mean, can you imagine? You are dripping from the tub. Your stomach is sticking out and you have the presence to say this. So Roosevelt tells him the idea of the United Nations. He embraces it at once, quotes an entire poem in British literature where the words had once been used. So that night, as soon as the Clintons left, I couldn't wait to go in the bathtub. And then I truly felt I was in the presence of the greatness of the past. Well, in the end, it took me six years to write that book about the home front, embarrassingly longer than it took the war to be fought. But once again, I loved every minute of it. But I suspect on both a personal and a professional level, no experience has been more rewarding than the last 10 years I spent living with Abraham Lincoln, waking up with him every morning, thinking about him when I went to bed at night. I knew when I started I respected him as a great statesman, but I had no idea how much affection I would feel for him. Nor did I fully appreciate his masterful political skills, his unparalleled emotional intelligence, and his life-saving sense of humor. Though he had been born with a melancholy temperament, he found that humor and storytelling could shake away his sadness. He once said a good laugh for him was better than a drop of whiskey, that he laughed so he did not weep. Indeed, storytelling was a part of his rise to political and legal power in Illinois. When he was a lawyer on the circuit, they would travel from one county courthouse to the other. And when anyone knew that Lincoln was in town, the villagers would come from miles around to listen to him tell stories. He would stand in the tavern with his back against a fire and entertain the crowd hour after hour with these long, winding tales. And the tales were so much funnier than I could possibly have imagined. One of his favorite stories had to do with the revolutionary war hero, Ethan Allen. And Mr. Allen, according to Lincoln, went to Britain right after the war. And the British were still upset about losing the war, so they decided to embarrass him a little bit by putting a huge picture of General George Washington in the only outhouse where he would have to encounter it. And they figured he'd think it's indig undignified for George Washington to be in an outhouse. But he came out of the outhouse not upset at all. And they said, well, didn't you see George Washington there? Oh, yes, he said. I think it was the perfectly appropriate place for him. What do you mean, they said? Well, he said, there's nothing to make an Englishman shit faster than the sight of General George Washington. <laughs> and I tell you, he had hundreds of these stories. I mean, it was incredible. He could be at a cabinet meeting, and he'd suddenly say, that reminds me of a story, and one of these stories would come out. Little wonder that they would have to relax for a few minutes in time. I loved it at one point, somebody yelled at him, Lincoln, you're two-faced. He turned right around, he said, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this face? But even as a child, I believe Lincoln dreamed heroic dreams. From the outset, he was aware of a destiny beyond that of his unlettered father and his hard scrabble childhood. While his formal schooling did not amount to one full year, what would happen is he would go to school a few weeks here, a few weeks there. His father would call him to work on the hard scrabble farm or send him off to pay off debts that he owed to other farmers. But still, he scoured the countryside for books, how he would have loved a public library system. He would have to go miles at time to bring a book home. And it was said when he got a copy of the King James Bible or Aesop's Fables or one of Shakespeare's plays, 
that he was so excited he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. The great poet Emily Dickinson once said, there is no frigate like a book to take us lands away. How true for Lincoln. Though he never would travel to Europe, he went with Shakespeare's kings to marry England. He went to Spain and Portugal with Lord Byron's poetry. Literature allowed him to transcend his surroundings. But there were so many losses in his early life that he was haunted by death. His mother died when he was only nine, his only sister Sarah in childbirth a few years later, and his first love, Anne Rutledge, at the age of 22. Moreover, as his mother lay dying, she did not hold out to him the promise that they would be reunited in the hereafter. She simply said to him, Abraham, I'm going away from you now, and I shall never return. As a result, he became obsessed with the thought that when we die, that is the last of us, that our life on earth is simply swept away dust to dust. As he grew older, however, he seemed to find consolation in the ancient Greek notion, picked up by other cultures as well, that when we die, our image lives on in the memory of others. He derived comfort from the thought that if he could accomplish something that would stand the test of time, his reputation and his honor would outlive his, earth, his earthly existence. That deep ambition, huge ambition, so much deeper than simply for office or power or celebrity, became his lodestar. It carried him through the one significant depression when he was in his early 30s. Three things had combined to lay him low. He had broken his engagement with Mary Todd, not certain he was ready to be married, but knowing how much it hurt her by his doing so. His one intimate friend, Joshua Speed, was leaving Illinois to go back to Kentucky because Speed's father had died, and his political career in the state legislature was on a downward slide. He was so depressed that friends worried seriously that he was suicidal, taking all knives, razors, and scissors from his room. He did indeed acknowledge, he said, I'm now the most miserable man living. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better. Speed came to Lincoln and in a conversation that both men would remember as long as they lived, said to him, Lincoln, if you do not rally, you will certainly die. Lincoln said then, I am more than willing to die now, but I have not yet done anything to make any human being remember that I have lived. And then he told Speed that desire to somehow leave the world a little better place for his having lived in it. Fueled by that worthy ambition, he gradually recovered from his depression returned to the state legislature, eventually won a seat in Congress, and then after having lost twice for the Senate, surprised the nation with an upset victory to win the Republican nomination for the presidency over three far better known, far more experienced, far more celebrated rivals. And then when he won the general election, he stunned the nation even more by appointing all three of these rivals to the chief positions in his cabinet, an unprecedented act especially since each one of them thought he should be president instead of Abraham Lincoln. Their presence threatened to eclipse the prairie lawyer from Illinois. He was asked, why are you doing this? You're going to look like a figurehead. He said, it's simple. These are the strongest and most able men in the country. The country is in peril. I need them by my side. But perhaps, as I was reminded earlier, my old friend Lyndon Johnson might have put it in less noble language. Better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out then outside the tent, pissing in. <laughs> I told you he had colorful language. But it soon became clear that Lincoln would emerge as the undisputed captain of this most unusual team of rivals, as each of them came to realize that he possessed an unparalleled array of emotional strengths that proved far more important than the relative thinness of his external resume. 
Indeed, as we look at the strengths that Lincoln possessed, these are the strengths we should be looking for in our candidates in, nine, in 2008. We have such superficial markers for looking at these candidates. Who says what in a debate? Who makes a mistake? Who wears earth-toned suits, sighs and shrugs? Who has a cleavage-revealing dress? They've all come from somewhere as leaders already. They've been governors, senators, congressmen, or mayors. We need to look back at their leadership already exhibited to see the strengths and weaknesses they have. They will bring those strengths and weaknesses to the presidency, and that's the job that our reporters should be much better able at than they have been so far. In Lincoln's case, when we look at what these leadership qualities were, number one, he possessed an unusual capacity to empathize with and understand other people's points of view. He repaired injured feelings that might have escalated into permanent hostility. He shared credit with ease. He assumed responsibility for the failure of his subordinates. He learned continually from his mistakes. He refused to be provoked by petty grievances, to submit to jealousy, or to brood over perceived slights. Time and again, he was the one who dispelled his colleagues' anxiety and sustained their spirits with his gift for storytelling and this life-affirming sense of humor. And he was able to express his unshakable convictions in a language of enduring beauty, almost as if the poetry and drama he had so loved as a child had worked their way into his very soul. In 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, Lincoln invited his old friend Joshua Speed to the White House. He reminded Speed of that conversation of two decades earlier, and then speaking of the proclamation, he declared, I believe that in this measure, my fondest hopes will be realized. Perhaps I will be remembered. But as he was about to put his signature on the proclamation, his own hand was numb and shaking from having shaken a thousand hands that morning at a New Year's reception. So he put the pen down. He said, if my hand trembles when I sign this, posterity will say he hesitated. And yet never has my soul been more fully in an act than in this act. So he put the pen down until he could finally sign with a bold and clear hand. I must say it saddened me so to realize that Lincoln had only a few days before his untimely death in April of 1865 to relish the thought that the war was finally coming to a close. Only a few days to realize that the pledge he had made at Gettysburg had been fulfilled, that all those who had given their lives had not in fact died in vain. For with the Union victory, the idea of America the idea that ordinary people could govern themselves had been preserved, a beacon of hope to the world at large. I confess that after living with this remarkable man day after day for the last 10 years, I had trouble bringing the story to an end until I discovered a stunning interview with Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, in the New York newspaper in 1908. Tolstoy told of a trip that he had recently made to a remote area of the Caucasus where there were a group of wild barbarians who had never left that part of Russia and so they asked him to tell stories of the great men of history since he was there. So he said, I entertained them for hours with stories of Julius Caesar and Napoleon and Alexander the Great and Frederick the Great, and they loved it. But before I finished, the chief of the barbarians stood up and he said, but wait, you haven't told us about the greatest ruler of them all. We want to hear about that man who spoke with the voice of thunder, who laughed like the sunrise, who came from this place called America, which is so far from here, that if a young man should travel there, he would be an old man when he arrived. Tell us of that man. Tell us of Abraham Lincoln. So Tolstoy said he told them everything he could about Lincoln. And then he was asked in the interview, what made Lincoln so great? 
Not as great a general, he said, as Napoleon, not as great a statesman as Frederick the Great. But Tolstoy concluded, and historians the world over would readily agree, his supremacy expressed itself altogether in the peculiar moral power and in the integrity of his character. So in the end, that dream of Lincoln's to be remembered had indeed been realized. That dream that had carried him through his bleak childhood, his laborious efforts to educate himself, his string of political failures, and the darkest months of the war, when he was called upon to rally his disheartened countrymen, soothe the animosity of his generals, and mediate among the members of his often contentious administration, his story would indeed be told. Now for most of us, the chance to have our story told will not be realized through a marble monument in Washington, but rather through the memories of our families, our children, our professional colleagues, and our work. Which brings me back at the end to that one of those roots of my love of history, to my father's love of baseball, and the second, my mother's stories of the days when she was young. Though both my parents died of sudden heart attacks, my mother when I had just turned 15, and my father when I was still in my 20s, before I got married and had my three sons, I have passed their memories, as well as the love of baseball, onto my boys. Though when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, Brooklyn, I was so heartbroken I couldn't follow baseball until I went to Harvard, went to Fenway Park, became an equally irrational Red Sox fan. And I must say, even now, when I sit with my boys at Fenway Park with my season tickets, I can close my eyes against the sun and imagine myself a young girl once more in the presence of my father watching the players of my youth on the grassy fields below. Roy Campanella, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, and Duke Snyder. I must say there is magic in these moments. When I open my eyes and I see my sons in the place where my father once sat, I feel an invisible loyalty and love linking my sons to the grandfather whose face they never had a chance to see, but whose heart and soul they have come to know through all the stories I have told. Which is why in the end I shall always be grateful for this love of history allowing me to spend a lifetime looking back into the past, allowing me to believe that the private people we have loved and lost in our families and the public figures we have respected in our history, just as Abraham Lincoln wanted to believe, really can live on so long as we pledge to tell and to retell the stories of their lives. For honoring me as one of those storytellers tonight, I, I accept and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Bye. Thank you very much.